In the last two episodes, we explored the history of the city of Mississauga and the University of Toronto, Mississauga. For me, it felt a little like connect the dots. Having lived and gone to university here, I had a few points of reference in Mississauga, the dots, and through this podcast, I was connecting them, painting in the outlines of these places, and a beautiful picture was emerging. Through the stories we shared, we even began to shade in that picture, and we have a lot more coloring left to do. In my research, I was surprised by some darker tales, the spookier kind of legend that gives you goosebumps. So in this episode, we're going behind the Connect the Dots image, deep into the shadows, to hear about mysterious locked doors, footsteps on creaky old floorboards, about haunted Mississauga. Welcome to the haunted episode of Bright Lights, Big Saga. Quick confessional. I steer clear of scary movies. I skip out on creepy ghost stories around campfires. I even avoid the overly decorated houses at Halloween. So, when a few of my podcast conversations ventured into the realm of the spooky, I felt pretty uncomfortable. Especially when in one case, the haunted house being discussed was the one I was sitting in. Let me explain. I spent a long while in conversation with Matthew Wilkinson from Heritage Mississauga, who has been featured in the previous two episodes of this podcast. We sat in the basement of the Grange, the historic home to the Mississauga Heritage Foundation, and Matthew began to tell the story of the ghost who lives there. Well, truthfully, he was reluctant at first, providing extensive disclaimers about not believing the tales himself. But then, well, you listen. Has anything happened to me? No. Have I been, I've been in almost all the houses at some point. Nothing has ever We're happened to me. We're good with the But I'm, 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 I'm skeptical. But people have experienced things. This story, for example, when we moved in in 2004, a bunch of things happened at once that were kind of raised eyebrows. And none of it happened to me, but to my colleagues and, and, and others as well. We were told by the scouts to take care of Sam. And we, you know, who's Sam? Oh, it's the ghost. Oh, okay. <laughs> we're inheriting a ghost. When we moved in, uh, you know, anything, you move an office and that sort of thing, we come back the next day and every interior door was shut and locked. And we had no keys. So we actually had to get a locksmith in to open the doors for us. One of the oddities of it. And then we were told a couple of days later, a couple of weeks later by the scouts, that one of Sam's favorite tricks was to lock the doors. Uh, so we were working one day and the door was open and a cat walked in. And, you know, we don't have a cat. And who's the cat? We pick him up. He's got a collar. His name's Sam. A couple mannequins you'll see in the front office I acquired through, uh, through Fort York. And uh, they were individually made in the 1930s, and they were all named. And the first one I acquired came, came in that first week we were there, took his shirt off everything. His name's Samuel. And I was like, what are the odds of that? <laughs> 
we did a book in uh, 2005 called Haunted Mississauga with Terry Boyle, who's since passed away. And we launched it in 2005. And as part of it, we brought in a team of clairvoyants who investigated and documented a number of houses in Mississauga. And we met here in this facility. And one of them was looking around. His name was, uh, I can't think of John something from Oakville. And he said, you've got a ghost in here. So they stand in the corner upstairs in the upstairs. They stand in the corner watching us. And he says, "A well-dressed man, white beard, white white uh, mustache. Uh, he's got a suit on. He's got white hair. His name's Sam, and he doesn't want you to move any furniture. He's hiding something in the building." And we're like, <laughs> you know, kind of one of those oddities. And then to take it even further, uh, we have a photograph of the family here, uh, the Adamson family. And it was on display, and he pointed out, he goes, that's Sam. That's the guy I'm seeing right there in the photograph. He's the only person in that photograph we can't identify. We don't know who he is. And he's well-dressed, he's white-haired, he's got a mustache and everything. So we have a supposed picture of this, this fellow. We are told that he doesn't like it when we move furniture around or remodel because he's hiding something in the building. Um, and so that's when he locks the doors and, and whatnot. Uh, I have had a student who has felt her being pushed down the stairs. What you can't see at this point is the look of horror on my face as I gaze towards the basement staircase. My ears are attuned to every creak and squeak now, as Matthew continues. We've had meetings down here where they hear footsteps walking above their heads. This is not a historic space. So this is a 1979 basement under the 1828 house. Um, and so there's no ghost activity in the modern space. It's all upstairs. So all the things have been documented, been happened, been, been, have been stories related about them. Um, even descendants of the, the last Adamson family who lived here that moved out in the 1970s, they talked about there was a, fr a friendly spirit that, uh, that Harry Adamson used to talk to in the house. Um, and uh, that was the last owner of the house. What they are, who they are, there's no... I've done the property research here. There's no connection to a Sam that I can find whatsoever. There's not a name. There's not a... So who Sam was, why he's here, who he might have been, don't know. When I was reading Terry Boyle's book, Haunted Mississauga, he writes a lot about the Grange. He spent some time quoting Doreen Armstrong, administrative assistant for the Mississauga Heritage Foundation, and her experience at the Grange. This is a quote from her featured in the book. On a couple of occasions, I have brought my dog, Cody, a Sheltie, with me in the evenings when I have been asked to lock up after an organization has finished using the lecture hall downstairs. Every time he has come with me, Cody has come in the door, sniffed around the floor, and headed towards the stairway going up to the second floor. He stops there, and he whines, and then he turns and comes over to me and sits with his backside right on my feet. He doesn't move off my feet until I move him off, and then he stays right beside me. The last time I brought him in the building, he did the same thing at the stairway. Everyone was gone in the building but us. Cody did more whining and then came over to me. He wanted me to come with him up the stairs. I stayed where I was on the couch. Cody walked back to the stairs and looked up. No one was here except my dog and I. At least, that's what I thought. And then Terry Boyle goes on to write about the experience. Doreen indicated that the previous occupants of the building, the Boy Scouts, who we heard Matthew Wilkinson refer to as well, they also encountered unexplained activity. Doreen said, 
The Boy Scouts had used this building for years. They told us that their computers would flicker along with the lights in the building. And as Terry Boyle says, do not disturb seems to be the message the spirits are declaring at the Grange. Boyle's book chronicles other haunted locations in Mississauga, like the Addison Estate, not too far away from UTM on the shores of Lake Ontario in Port Credit. Apparently, he writes, there was a groundskeeper living on the estate when World War I broke out. The man had a young son by the name of Bernardo, or Bernard. He was between 10 and 15 years of age. His father left him when he entered into the service of his country. The son accidentally ingested some weed killer and died in the entranceway to the gatehouse. People have reported seeing the figure of a young man leaning against the wall of the building. He is bent over as if he is being sick to his stomach. Then he vanishes from sight. Boyle also writes about the Adamson estate's resident dog named Zeph. The problem is that Zeph died in 1953, as testified by his tombstone in the pet cemetery. Zeph was Anthony Adamson's favorite dog. He would bound around the property and then come to a stop on his mat by the front door. Here on this mat, Zeph would deposit his favorite stuffed toy. Apparently, Zeph still runs around the grounds and occasionally leaves his stuffed toy just inside the front door. After Zeph's passing, Anthony Adamson would discover the toy by the door and take it outside to Zeph's grave by the north door of the building. Before Anthony knew it, the toy would be back in the house. These tales of paranormal activity didn't just come from Matthew and Terry Boyle's book. They crept into my conversation with Dr. Barbara Merck as well. We were in her office to discuss her experiences at UTM as an award-winning professor when she told us this story. Okay, my name is Barbara Merck, and I am uh, an associate professor in the teaching stream in the Department of Geography and Environment Programs. The house you live the in? The house we live in is... Uh, was built in around 1903. They're not exactly sure of the date. It's so it's 115 years old-ish at this point, and um, it, it was built by the guy who used to be the Reeve of Port Credit, uh, Risden Parkinson. And when we moved in, um, my daughter was born a couple years later, and they had not yet really done the research on the house at all, and it hadn't been designated as a heritage property. And uh, we could not decide on a name for her. It was really got critical, like she was due to be born shortly. And, and we never did decide on a boy's name, so it was good that she turned out to be a girl. But in the end, we, we named her Eliza. It was the only name we could agree on. The only name we could agree on. So then they did the research on the house, and it turns out that Risden Parkinson's wife was Eliza Jane Peer. Yeah, a little bit of goosebumps there. It, so we kind of feel like Eliza was making her wishes known to us when we were choosing the name for our daughter. Yeah, Pierre is a very old uh, Port Credit family. Wow. Yeah. Oh, the, some of the stories we've heard have I been... Know, I know. Just we were sitting in the mm -hmm. Heritage home 
and Matthew was telling us the story about a ghost that possibly lived. I mean, he was very skeptical about it, but he told a story that was very compelling. Yeah. And I sat there going, here? In this, in this where we're sitting right yeah. now. Wasn't in that. I walked, I've never held on to a rail as firmly as when I was going back. So that's what happens when you get curious about something, I guess. When you start to see the full picture of a place, you are faced with all of its many shades. And truth be told, once the goosebumps went away and I reflected back on the ghostly tales I had heard, I was... I am kind of fascinated and amused. There seems to be much more to the space around us than what we can see and touch. Its history, light and dark, and its people have made it what it is, have left their own dots on the image, and some, perhaps, have chosen never, ever to leave. Bright Lights Big Saga, script and narration by me, Claire Carver Dias. Podcast concept and production by Joanna Zermak, who also happens to be the other part of the we you often hear me mention. Musical credits go to Evan Schaefer, Nocturnum, and Kai Engel. And if you're pleasantly haunted by what you've heard, rate us on iTunes. We will be eternally grateful.